Hi there, I'm Bob Pittman, Chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. I'm excited to announce a new season of my podcast, Math & Magic, Stories from the Frontiers of Marketing. Our guests this season show us big risk can yield big rewards, like Rob Riley, the creative head of one of the world's leading advertising firms. I try to create environments where anybody can say anything without any judgment. Listen to a brand new season of Math & Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcast. Rachel Zoe here, and we're going back to the Rachel Zoe Project for a very special takeover on my podcast, Climbing in Heels. Come with me as I take you back to season one to give you all the behind the scenes details and drama. I'll be joined by some special guests that'll be helping me share the real stories behind the most iconic moments in the show. So do not miss this special takeover of Climbing in Heels. It's going to be bananas. Listen to Climbing in Heels with Rachel Zoe on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, and wherever you get your podcasts. If you want to level up your marketing and business knowledge, look no further than the Marketing School Podcast, hosted by Neil Patel and yours truly, Eric Sue. It is the number one marketing podcast on Apple and number 15 on business in the United States. Now, if you want to listen to interesting conversations with operators that have been there, done that, also with other interesting guests, then listen to Marketing School every weekday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to Work Radio, partnership between iHeartMedia and WeWork. This episode of Art of the Hustle, we're here at Grissini Restaurant with Tony Delgado. Uh, he is the owner and founder of Grissini as well as Westmont Country Club. You grew up in Hell's Kitchen, 1938, you were born. You've been doing this a long time. Obviously, the landscape of New York City and Hell's Kitchen has changed a lot. Why don't you tell us a little bit about what it was like growing up back then? Uh, growing up in Hell's Kitchen, I guess the word stands for itself, hell. Yeah, but we didn't know that at the time because we grew up, everybody was in the same pot, so to speak. So if you slept on a fire escape or you swam down the Hudson River, we all did it. So we didn't know how very poor we were, but we were rich in love, with parents and friends. And how did those experiences help to shape your mindset or help you become who you are now? Well, I don't want to live like that yep. the rest of my life. So I used to see my father hardly at hard going to work. And uh, I didn't want to be like that. I wanted to just make money. Money was on my mind since I was nine years old. I wanted to make money. Wow. So how did that affect you wanting to go to school? I know uh, in your father's family, there were seven siblings and only the oldest got to go to college. Um, and he wasn't the oldest. Um, and it sounds like with money being on your mind since nine years old, Education was important to your father. He wanted you to go, but you had other things in mind. So what happened there? Yeah, he, all he talked about was go to school, go to school, go to school. And all I thought about was making money, making money, making money. And I went out, I shined shoes, sold shopping bags. I did whatever it took to make money. I did go eight years to grammar school. There was only one Catholic school in the neighborhood, and I went there. Then I went six months to high school. After six months in high school, I said, this is not for me because the subjects I was getting in high school, I, was, I learned in, the, in Catholic school in the sixth grade. It was kind of boring. Other than, besides being boring, it was not what I wanted to do. Every day I left my house with zero money in my pocket. And I always wanted to come home with at least a dollar, which meant a lot to me. So I went out and I hustled. I made money. I kept it. 
made more money, kept going. I sold two shopping bags one day, then four, then six, then eight. Shine shoes, whatever it took to make a dollar. I did. Worked in bingo halls, selling hot dogs and sodas. And it was a rough neighborhood to begin with. So when you came out of the house, there was no plan on what you were going to do for the day. It just worked out on its own. It's what it was going to do to you, not what you were going to do to it. So with you running around doing all of this, were your parents supportive or did they think you were in school or what did they think was going on? Oh, they thought I was in school. Okay. I mean, even burned all the, almost burned the building down to try to burn letters that came from the school. And uh, unfortunately, or fortunately, that didn't happen. But uh, when I realized I was burning my mother's mail, that was getting bills from electric telephones, stuff like that. It started with the phone to begin with. And the phone, there's inventions that just came out, she thought. She used to get phones from the school, phone calls. And then I used to, in the morning before she got up, I used to take the magnet out of the phone. So I screwed the magnet by the phone head back in. And then when I was out, the phone would ring, but she'd say hello, but she wouldn't get a, re a response. And she kept telling me about these new inventions, they stink. So I says, I used to tell her, Ma, the phone works. I put the magnet back in. I says, I call this one, call that one. Call. I says, everything works. So uh, everything's okay. But then I started to get letters in the mail. So I knew if I got a letter in the mail, and my father, I heard my father's footsteps going down the stairs, then coming back up, I knew I was going to get a beating, you know, so there was something in the mail. So I said, I can't have this happen. So I used to go down there, and I used to get a wick. I used to light it up, and I used to put it in the mailbox, in the slot where they dropped the mail, and I used to burn the mail down. So I did that for a while, but then my mother's bills weren't being paid, and I, I felt the... Uh, I felt terrible about that, you know. I, how can I do this to my mother, my father? After all that, how beautiful they, the type of people they were. So I, I called call a friend of mine. Couldn't figure out what happened or the next step I could take. So the best step I could have taken, I told my friend, made, I made him call the school and tell him that, act as my father, and told the school that my son passed away. He died. So now I had a free hand to do whatever I wanted. I was running the streets, doing anything I wanted to do until I got caught sneaking in the movies and I got arrested. And uh, they found out who I really was. My mother had, father had to come down to get me. But I was already 16 years old at that time, so I had a couple of good years you know, under my belt without going to school. So I, my parents found out about it, but at that time, being 16, I was able to quit. And I quit. And then I hustled, I built my own push cart. The, the old horse and buggy carriages. I took the wheels and the axles off of them. I put my own cart on top of it. And me and my friend, this guy, Kid Frankie, he's a twin, went down to the market, $15 a piece. We bought $30 worth of fruit and vegetables, fruit. And we had it peddled on Ninth Avenue. I paid the cops a dollar here, a dollar there, just to keep the push carts. And we used to get locked up too. Every, every couple of days, you had a bad cop would say, all right, come with me, take the push cart. Wheel it down to 30th Street, the 14th Precinct. And if you came out and it was a good cop, your food would be on the, on the cart. Sometimes they would take, they raid the cart and take all the food. But some cops would let you sell out your food at two rush hours at 12, 12 o'clock and 5 o'clock. And then once they let you sell out, you said you had to go to court at 8 o'clock tonight. They said, you better be in court. Otherwise, so I, I used to go to court at 8 o'clock, pay a $2 fine, and then I did it again the next day. So my father was making... $30 a week, I was making $30 a day, you know, but they had no idea about school until I, I, I quit.
And uh, then I wound up in the army. I, you know, I got married after the service. After I got, I went to the. You know, I, I pushed up my draft because they were they were drafting married husbands uh, that were married, and I pushed up my draft so that I knew a year after I got married I would be drafted. So I didn't want that to happen. You know, I didn't want to be married and then go away. So I pushed up my draft. I went to the army, served my two years, and uh, got married. I wound up coming out to Jersey. A friend of mine says, you want to look at this place? Uh, it's the Cameo. I said, yeah, I look at anything. I didn't care. I mean, if it took me thinking about what I had to do, I would probably not, not, never, done, never done anything. But I saw an opportunity here that had a great cocktail lounge. All I saw was a cocktail lounge with 600, 400 people, four to 600 people in there every night. Wow, this is great. Meantime, they had five banquet rooms upstairs that I didn't know the first thing about how to operate. So when I closed on it, my lawyer says, well, what do you know about banquets? I said, I don't know anything. Not even one thing, you know, never did it bank. I said, absolutely not. I said, but I'll learn. You know, I took my beating for the first couple of years, but then I, I learned. I kept going, kept learning. I opened up a discotheque upstairs. I, I used one of the ballrooms, and the money started to come in. And then I, I opened up a couple of other clubs, and I wound up, uh, a year later, I bought the Westbound Country Club, which was in shambles. It had to be reconstructed, so to speak. And uh, that took some timing to get that going. Of course, I, my, by that time, my brother was with me also. So when that at the Westmount was a, a disaster waiting to happen because they sold it when the place was just crumbling down at a, when it was at an optimum from that for them, but not for us. It was a disaster. But if I had to think about what I was going to do and plan something, I probably wouldn't be where I am today. So I never planned anything. Things just happened. A cameo was supposed to be a theater in the round. I was interested. I said, okay, I'm interested. But then somebody went there to outbid me, and I outbidded him. I wound up with the place, and I kept it as catering in a cocktail lounge. And then I paid off my mortgage, and I was free. And now I was mortgage-free, debt-free. And what we did was take the money that we made, and we kept putting it back into the place. And we're there now, I guess, over 42 years. And it's, uh, we call it now the, the one and only Westmount Country Club because it is, a, it is a one of a kind. They call it the Jewel of New Jersey. Uh, we do about 400 weddings a year. We can do up to 50, people up to 1,500 people parties. And then the, in the meantime, while we were there, then I opened up Rossini. We actually, we, we built this building. We had to raise it and build it because it was non-conforming use. So we raised the building, put a new foundation under it, raised the ceilings that we uh, we made a go of this. I had five partners. We should spend four hours together talking about making linguine with white clam sauce. Everybody had an opinion, which was horrible at the time. So a couple of partners we brought out. Uh, my one good partner passed away. And then it was not just me and my brother. So my brother is sort of retired. But he goes up, to, goes up to the Westmount Country Club once a week, take care of business up there. And I stay here, I'm here almost every day. Uh, I use it socially, and I use it business-wise, because there's a lot of things that happen behind the scenes that people don't know about, and I don't let them know about it, you know? I mean, the other day, the, the, the hood broke down, the fans busted, pipes in the back broken, frozen. But uh, I managed to learn how to do things as I go. Like I said, if I had to start now and know what I know now, I probably, wouldn't try many things that I did try. And the reason why I tried them because I had nothing to lose. When you're broke, 
You have nothing to lose. There's a lot of brilliance in that. Well, let me ask you this. As you tried all these things and these new business ventures, did you have a vision that, you know what, something like Westmount, which where you've been in business for over 40 years, could achieve kind of the, the standard, like you said, the jewel of New Jersey and the financial success it does over, what, $30 million annually. Did, could you ever imagine that when you were doing, when you were starting? No, absolutely it? not. Yeah. I just wanted it to be successful. So my motto is refuse to lose. So I do that when I play cards. I do that when I play golf. I do that when I play anything. But when I'm against someone, I refuse to lose. And I learned that from a wise man. He says, always put it into your brain. Refuse to lose. So I use that motto. I refuse to lose. No matter what I'm trying and what I'm doing, I refuse to come in second. And uh, I, I did all these things on a whim, on, on a chance, just taking a chance. I never knew it was going to work out. Yeah, that's incredible. You mentioned uh, with your different partners when you were starting Grassini, everyone had an opinion on the linguine. You actually get in the kitchen and, and have some recipes yourself, right? Well, my mother was a great cook. And uh, I guess most Italian families, the mothers are good cooks. You know, my neighborhood, everybody made a better meatball than the next mother. You know, I got 100 friends, 200 friends. Their mothers made the best meatball, you know, all of us. And I said, my mother makes the best meatball. No, your mother makes the best meatball. But I, I helped my mother in the kitchen when I was younger. And uh, she didn't have no much equipment to work with. It's cold water flats, they were, you know. I mean, I was born in a cold water flat. I wasn't born in a hospital. So I knew what it was to help her whenever I can, whenever I wasn't out with the guys, or whenever I wasn't running around the streets, I would help her. But I, at, at my house at 5 o'clock or 5.30, I had to have dinner with the family. So I'd help her. She, she used to give the recipes to my sisters. And uh, they, when they, they got married, my sister in Florida still has her recipe and her pots and pans that she had. And that's going back. And my mother died about 20 years ago, you know. But she still has all the recipes in a book. So I came here and I saw Sundays being slow. So I started making meatballs and uh, stuffed artichokes. And I saw that peasant Italian food start to really take off and people enjoyed it tremendously. And then it just built up where now, uh, you know, nothing to do 200 people on a Sunday over here. But the meatballs became so popular that I serve them every night also with meatballs and, and homemade spaghetti and homemade pasta. Because all, all our pastas are homemade in this restaurant. Most of the breads, pastas, desserts. And I pride myself on buying the finest quality money could buy. I don't care what it is. I mean, the troubles run three, 4,000 a pound, I buy it. Uh, you know, right now I'm not in it for the money. I'm in it to satisfy myself, my employees. They're like, I look at them like my extended family. They need help buying a house, getting a mortgage, paying for a car. The kids get in trouble. I get them out of jail if that need be. So I, I, I enjoy helping people now. You know, that I, I don't have to. I could actually retire. I could have retired 20 years ago, but I chose not to. Yeah. Two interesting questions out of uh, the things you just mentioned there. One of which is, obviously, the Sunday sauce must be very popular. I read somewhere that uh, David Burke, this is his favorite restaurant. Oh, David uh, Burke. And that he eats here often. He's a great uh, chef. Well known. Very well known. Who are some other people that eat here over the years, over the past 25 years? Oh, uh... Uh, Todd English, David Burke. You talk about 
chefs you're talking about? Are you talking Any, about anyone our listeners might recognize their name? Eric Boland was in here the other night, and uh, actually, uh, Puff Daddy, yep. Pete Diddy, Sean Combs. What's his name? Yeah, Sean Combs. I think I saw Paul Rosenberg, who's Eminem's manager and the CEO of Def Jam. I remember seeing CC Sabathia from the New York Yankees. Yes. Uh, Sylvia Roan, who's CEO of Epic Records. Um, Kelly Ann, Kelly Ann Conway. There you go, another one. Yeah. Um, and I think was it uh, who's the Italian gentleman we were just talking about? Who's uh, been in a couple couple movies? He was in Goodfellas. Uh, a buddy of yours, Frank. Uh, Frankie Vincent. He passed Frank, away. Yeah. Yeah. Frankie Vincent. Um, interesting. Well, we hung out a little bit with uh, Joe Pesci and, and, yeah. and that crew, so I knew them quite well. From growing up in. Well, through my wife. Yeah. She came from that area, the area with Joe Pesci. He used to play in a band called, I think, the Victorians or something. They used to do an Italian stint. And uh, even when they even when they, they uh, went to get him for the part that Robert De Niro wanted him in, uh, when he called, he was a maitre d' in a restaurant in Long Island, and, and he had no idea. When they, they called him and told him who they were, he hung up on them because he didn't believe it. You know? yeah. Then they actually went out there to get him. And uh, he's pretty successful since then. The other thing that you mentioned there is, you know, working with your brother and family and uh, the people who work at Corsini and Westmount are extended family. Yes, they are. So why is that important to you to, to work with people you love? I tell you, it feels good when you're in the place itself and you feel like you have a big supportive system. It's nothing like having backing, you know? It feels terrific, you know, you feel comfortable. There's nobody looking to do you. Because I know this type of business, is a, is a risky business. There's not many restaurants that survive more than five years. I mean, it's probably the biggest failure type of business there is, is the restaurant. So as this becomes more successful, and it has been getting more successful, we're doing more than we did last year or the years before. I intend to do more next year than I did this year. I always strive for uh, to go up five, 10% if I can, and I'll do whatever I have to do. Any changes I have to make to do it. If I have to renovate it, if I have to change the menu, no matter what it takes, I'll go out there, I'll see something. I belong to GRI, which is a group of Italian restaurateurs. So we travel to Europe a lot. So I, I, I got a lot of knowledge from traveling to Italy quite a few times, me and my wife. And uh, it's been a good run now that I don't need the money. <laughs> well, it's incredibly interesting to me that, you know, such a fine dining establishment um, and you're providing the highest produce, the highest quality of food. At the same time, you're looking to get back to your patrons. So, you know, you just celebrated your 25th anniversary. There was a, a slew of items on the menu menu that were only $25 and different anniversaries, it's different discounts. Um, why is it important to you to make sure that, you know, your customers feel that family atmosphere the same way your employees and family do? Well, it gives me and my wife a lot of joy when people come up to you and they, they compliment. The compliments are unbelievable, you know. And I actually, I, I even feel embarrassed, sort of embarrassed at times because uh, with all these, there used to be complaints too years ago, you know, when I was going through transition periods, I had to get rid of this chef, hire another chef. I, so the consistency is what counts in this business. And now that we have a constant uh, restaurant that runs the same service-wise and food-wise, it's all nothing but compliments and high praises. I mean, Kellyanne Conway made a statement from the White House that this is a, one of the best restaurants she's ever eaten in. Wow. 
yeah, this is pretty good. <laughs> you, uh, you made a comment about how you're still involved in the nuances and the intricacies of the actual restaurant and making sure everything flows smoothly. How do you unwind with being so involved with all of this stuff? Well, I unwind, I think, automatically. It's, it's automatically. I don't know when I unwind because I, I'm, I'm unwound and I don't know it. So there are times I unwind and I realize, geez, I had a nice relaxing night tonight. You know, but I realize after the fact, no, while I'm unwinding, I don't plan to unwind. Yeah. Unless when I go on vacation and stuff like that. You're also a black belt in karate, right? Yes, I am. How did you get involved in that, and what do you appreciate about karate? Well, I was in construction at the time, and uh, I started to box. And my friend says, come up to uh, this place. It's karate. Is karate. I'm not looking to break boards and all that stuff, I used to see. But it, it, it wasn't all about that, which I did not know. It's a martial art. And I went to 168th Street Broadway in Harlem, and they were training up there. He, he brought me up there, and I watched. I mean, the exercise alone, before you start learning and training, would, uh, 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 the endurance you need was unbelievable. You can take your gi and you can wring it out and fill up a pail of water. That's how hard they worked you before you started to learn. And it's something like they, they teach you to walk before you run. You have to learn how to walk a certain way, how to breathe a certain way. And I kept seeing my, I, I went there and I kept going constantly. I was going, going up, there, I was putting on exhibitions on Broadway. I was there five days a week, minimum, maybe six. I saw my body being able to do what it never could do before. When I went up there, I started working out. I thought I could do anything. There's a lot of things I couldn't do. But I started now seeing my body doing things that I couldn't possibly have done when I first started. And it was, it was exciting to me. The only reason why I really left, it became uh, very political. You know, these I, I, I used to sit with the Buddhist monks, all the black belts. I went to some weddings, Japanese weddings. And... Um, then it became political. My, my, my sensei was writing a book. And so I was teaching while well, he was writing a book for about two years. And then the politics got involved. Like actually where it came to threatening, threats coming from other schools and stuff. You know, you weren't doing this kata the right way. You did this move wrong and coming from, from you know, Japan. You know, and that's another way I, I know this uh, Japanese kid uh, that used to I used to train with, he used to tell me where, how we used to fight in combat hand to hand in, in Japan, and he used to have the same mind thought. Like he, he know that guy can't hurt. You put it in your mind that guy can't hurt me. He cannot hurt me. He says so I should just walk right through them with kicks and punches. It didn't matter what I got hit with or how I got hit. My mind was so trained that I couldn't be hurt. That I used to win every fight I had. You know. So I used to go, well, I, I, learned from, I learned a lot from karate. I learned, I, when I was stressed out at times, I knew how to handle the stress through breathing, certain exercises I learned, and uh, gave me a stronger mind to think about things and analyze it. So I became my own psychiatrist, so to speak. Yeah. Yeah, that's requires a, an inordinate amount of discipline, and I'm sure it helped you from a business perspective as you know, your motto of refuse to lose. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, I mean, I, that was a great part of my life, the years that I did study that martial art. It was a very, very big part of my life. It made me realize who I really was. You know, I was kind of shy about talking to anybody. I wouldn't talk to anybody in the street. I wouldn't talk to anybody at a restaurant. You know, I kept my, a, a neighborhood 
We only talk to your friends. You know, yeah, all the, all the, anything, anything outside your neighborhood were the enemies. So I had that instilled in me, you know, not knowing that it was really wrong. There are a lot of nice people around you, you know, but we were used to fighting in the streets and all kinds of stuff, having battles with other, other ethnic groups, you know, whether it be Irish or another. Yeah, what, actually, my neighbor was the Irish and the Italians. So, and all of a sudden, then who married an Irish girl and who I, I became friends with some real good Irish guys. And they went on and on like that. So then I started to be able to loosen up and talk to people. You know, I was very defensive against people. I know I figured that guy, that guy hates me, I used to think. Yeah. But, but then I found out that he really doesn't hate me. It's like when two guys are in the car, guys yelling, screaming, right? they get out, they want to kill each other. It could be the two nicest guys in the world. But they get that rage in them, you know. And uh, when you grow up, when you grow up with it, it's hard to change. Yeah. You uh, switching gears for a moment. You mentioned, uh, you know, the compliments you receive, and um, you you've obviously had a lot of great chefs who've come here to dine. Which recognition are you most proud of, and why? Oh, how I've gone against the odds, and I succeeded. The deck was stacked against me. The odds were totally 100 to 1 that I would fail. Which business venture that you've done has been the one that you've enjoyed the most? That's a hard question because uh, I would have tried anything. So maybe it was another type of business that I would have liked more than the businesses I've owned. I've been in about 20 businesses. And like I said, they were like all my children. I like them all. And I had the cameo and I had the Westmount, and I had Rossini, I put, I had a card with the three companies on, on, the, on the front of the card, each one company. I looked at them as they were all my children, and I treated them all the same. If one made 10 times more than the other one, well, it was supposed to make that much. A lot of guys can only run one business and make it as big as they possibly can, but if they had to run a business where they're making like $20 million a year, and then they took another business where they're making a million dollars a year. Some people can't do that. You know, they can't even comprehend it. But I don't care if I open up a store. I know it's supposed to make five hundred dollars a week, and I choose to open it. I'll settle for that. I'll try to make it make more, but I'll settle for that. So, so I have no one business in particular that I'm really, really, really. There's too many of them that I liked. I, I bet. Once they became successful. Well, that's interesting because, you know, a lot of successful people, um, they always say, you know, enjoy the journey. You know, it's one thing when you get to wherever you're trying to go, but a lot of times looking back, they enjoy what got you to that place. Did you enjoy the journey or? No, I did not. <laughs> yeah. I didn't. There was, the journey wasn't good for me. Yeah. You know, it was a fight, it was a fight every day yeah. to get to a certain place. And I mean every day. I mean, I went through thick and thin, uh, the, the government, the state, the taxes. I wasn't tuned and I wasn't used to being like with the books and records. I was sloppy in that respect because I didn't, it didn't interest me. Yeah. And then I had some bad accountants, bad lawyers. So I had to suffer, take the blunt of that. But I got out of them. One way or another, I still got out of it, you know. So I, it was a fight every every day of my life until... I become successful, which I could have said then I could retire, you know. But to that point, that day, it was tough. Yeah. What What's the difference between re retirement for you and when you're working? Because it seems like you're still so hands-on or at least 
uh, involved in the businesses? Well, I'm, I'm sort of like a perfectionist, and uh, I know perfection doesn't exist. You know, I think Socrates said that, didn't he? Anyway, I still am a perfectionist, and I strive for it. I, if a light bulb just flitched, it bothers me. If uh, I see something out that sounds not right, the music's not right, the bottles aren't right, the cleanliness isn't done, the bathrooms aren't right, I, I, it just drives me up a wall. And, that, and my all my employees know it, so they're prepared to do whatever it takes to make me happy. And I, it's not by a threat, by no means. It's my, it's a habit. Yeah. So it sounds like you've always trusted your gut instinct, but you've also come across a lot of successful people, whether through social or through dining. What's the best piece of advice you've gotten, and who did it come from? Refuse to lose. Came from a very wise, very, very wealthy, successful man. And you've lived with that mantra all your life then? Yeah, you got uh, well, that at a young age? The last uh, yeah, 30 or 40 years. And if you were going to pass down advice to aspiring entrepreneurs, people who listen to this program, what would you share with them? Well, never say never. And when something you think is hard to get done, you work harder. And it'll be done. Then you can look back and say, wow, it wasn't as hard as I thought it was. A lot of people give up. You never, ever give up. I never would do that in life, no matter what, it, what I was doing. Yeah. And being that, you know, you're approaching your 80th birthday this year. Wow, really? I am? <laughs> we'll, we'll change it. Your 65th birthday. Well, you, you at least look 60. Oh, so, okay. so, Thank you. <laughs> um, you know, you talk about you're a part of uh, different groups and you travel to try different food. Is that how you stay current to make sure that you're on top of the ever-changing landscape of restaurants and hospitality? Well, I do. I, I mean, I'll, if, if a new place opens up, even in New York or somewhere, uh, I, I, when I go out, we go out to eat. We go out to dine. We don't go out to eat. And I go out and I try to learn as much as I can in any place I go to. Whether I go to Florida, I go to Europe, I'll see something that'll catch my eye and I'll say, I'm, I'm bring that back with me. I'm, I'm going to try it at my restaurant, you know. And uh, even if my chef can't understand it, by the time I'm through with him, he'll, he understands it. When it's all said and done, how do you want to be remembered? I want to be remembered as Tony Delgado, who was one that was a, a giver, not a receiver. Yeah, I, like, I like doing things for people whenever I can. It gives me great pleasure to see somebody in need, because I was in need a lot of years of my life. And I know what it is to be in need. So to give to someone, it uh, gives me a lot of pleasure. If you could trade jobs with anyone for one day, who would it be and why? I, I should say the president. <laughs> we wish you would. <laughs> <laughs> um, why? I, I had dinner with him twice. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. That quite a memory he does. He remembered from one year to two years later who I was. Yeah. I was at a fight with him one time. The Mancini fight when he fought Mayweather. I was sitting right next to him, the front row. So, uh, and then I did work on some of his projects too. I got paid. A lot of people said they didn't get paid. I got paid. Yeah. That's good. <laughs> yeah. That's good. What's the next chapter of your life consistent? I don't know. I never did know. Yeah. And I don't know, but I know something's coming up. Yeah. 
have an extrasensory perception. <laughs> well, I mean, just knowing who you are and the energy and the attention to detail, that's not At my age, I still have the energy, though. I do have the yeah. energy, yeah. yeah. I, can go, I can go without sleep for days if I had to. And is that just the refuse to lose mantra that has you that you go without sleep or is it something else? I think I was born like that. Yeah. I was born like that. That's why my uncles just called me Butchie. I was like a tough kid, you know. Yeah. And uh, I never backed down from anyone or anything. And I always uh, went full, full force ahead, straight ahead. But they went into trouble or not, that didn't matter. I know I'd, at the other end, I'd come out okay. Did you ever have any self-doubt? No, never. It would always just work out. You believe that? I, see, when you're when you bro when you broke, when you have nothing, what could you lose? I keep saying, like, what, what, what could you lose? What could have happened to me? Yeah. I, 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 I'd still be broke if nothing worked out. So, but i try something else. Something's got to work out. If you try 100 things, at least something, one thing got to work out. We appreciate Tony Delgado for joining Art of the Hustle, um, and we look forward to hearing from you soon on whatever your next venture is. Thank you very much. Thank you. For more about Art of the Hustle, go to iHeartRadio.com slash Art of the Hustle. Hi there. I'm Bob Pittman, Chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. I'm excited to announce a new season of my podcast, Math & Magic, Stories from the Frontiers of Marketing. Our guests this season show us big risk can yield big rewards. Like Rob Riley, the creative head of one of the world's leading advertising firms. I try to create environments where anybody can say anything without any judgment. Listen to a brand new season of Math & Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcast. Rachel Zoe here, and we're going back to the Rachel Zoe Project for a very special takeover on my podcast, Climbing in Heels. Come with me as I take you back to season one to give you all the behind-the-scenes details and drama. I'll be joined by some special guests that'll be helping me share the real stories behind the most iconic moments in the show. So do not miss this special takeover of Climbing in Heels. It's going to be bananas. Listen to Climbing in Heels with Rachel Zoe on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, and wherever you get your podcasts. If you want to level up your marketing and business knowledge, look no further than the Marketing School Podcast, hosted by Neil Patel and yours truly, Eric Sue. It is the number one marketing podcast on Apple and number 15 on business in the United States. Now, if you want to listen to interesting conversations with operators that have been there, done that, also with other interesting guests, then listen to Marketing School every weekday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.